Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, it's all about your future, if you have one, because it's SST 157, the SWA compilation evolution. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Greg Cameron on the show. Yeah, what a great record to end the year and hard to think of a better guest for this record too. And I was also thinking this interview, it kind of tells like in, in Greg Cameron's own way, the history of SST, right? We cover like almost all the bases in this interview. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a really good one. Happy to have Greg on. He's helped us with every SWA release so far. Glad to finally have him on. I think it's a great interview to end our kind of our our season here. Oh, totally. That that's what I mean. Like it's uh, it's a great way. It's a great wind up. Hey. Great oh yeah. Wind up. Oh yeah. Great great wind up. <laughs> uh, well, why don't you hit us with uh, some spiels before we get a little swab rant? Okay, Ryan. Lots of people have been posting their top five Spotify artists, songs, and podcasts, and sharing them with us because we made a lot of people's top fives and many number ones this year. So I want to thank everyone who uh, posted or shared their list. I want to thank everyone who hit us up this year with some cool content or some info or shared the episodes or commented on one of our posts or sent us records, Ryan. Holy crap. Yeah. Sent us links to other you know, cool things that we might be interested in, uh, made recommends to us, uh, sent us messages of support. Yeah. Uh, super big thanks to all of the artists that we've had on this year and, or that helped us with the show. And in that spirit, Ryan, because we're going to take a, a little break here, I decided my spiel today would be 10 podcasts to check out while Mojack is on hiatus. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And this is in no particular order. Some of these I've mentioned before, some not. Okay. Okay. Number 10, the alphabetical Fugazi. Oh, what do Uh, they do there? Well, it's this guy, Ian James Wright. He's discussing every single song in Fugazi's discography. As he says, from Fugazi to Fugazi. I love that. Lots I think you mentioned, you mentioned this one before. Now that you now that you mention it again, that one sounds cool. Yeah, he's he's got lots of guests. He's got guests like Ted Nicely, uh, Don Ziantera, many more. The first one that he did is Twenty Three Beats Off with Joe Gross, who wrote the Thirty Three and a Third book on Killtaker. So that's right a great place to start. There's a few podcasts like this. Uh, there's a, one called The Weird Alphabet which is all of Weird Al's discography, alphabetically, song by song. Oh, speaking of which, I finally checked out that Weird Al recommend. That was, where have you been all my life? The Zappa (laughs) tribute. That's insane, man. It's good, hey? Hey, oh yeah. Hey, I've got uh, an Ian Mackay, Don Ziantara tie-in with my spiel. Okay. Nice one. This might be a different podcast that I'm thinking of. But I seem to recall listening to that song's episode on the Weird Alphabet, and I think maybe Mike Keneally gets interviewed, but I could be wrong. That might be a different podcast I'm thinking of. 
Uh, there's a Ramones one called Ramones of the Day. Uh, and both that and the Weird Al one are done. So there's lots to discover there. Right on. Uh, also, there's, I guess I'm kind of doing more than 10 here because I'm throwing these into my number. <laughs> In along with the alphabetical Fugazi one. There's also one called Unscripted Moments, a podcast about propaganda. It's these two dudes, Keith and Greg. I believe they're both teachers and they take like kind of a academic approach to songs in the propaganda catalog. Oh, like if they're making political references or, or whatnot, they go into it or is it an academic uh, analysis of their actual, like their music? Uh, Are they, they looking at, looking they, at the references or the music itself? Well, they do talk about the music, uh, but yeah, they talk about the references in the songs. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's a good one too. Okay, number nine, Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. This is an eight-part series narrated by Maxine Peake, full involvement of the band members, many guests like Bobby Gillespie, Johnny Marr, Liam Gallagher, Perry Farrell, Thurston Moore. It's very well done. It's sanctioned, officially sanctioned, so it has music on it. It really reminds me of that Stay Free, the story of The Clash podcast oh yeah right. it might even be made by the same people i'm not sure uh there's a third man one too um about the white stripes which i haven't listened to the story of the white stripes okay number eight the cherry red podcast the host and interviewer kind of rotates around but sometimes label founder ian mcnay does some of it he's got some really cool guests David Thomas of Pear Ubu, Bill Nelson of Bebop Deluxe, Jaw Wobble was recently on it. They tend to have artists related to Cherry Red releases. One I thought you might like, Ryan, is Steve Diggle talking about how the Buzzcocks reunited in 1989. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. There's a Rhino one too, Rhino Records. Uh, there's the Alternative Tentacles, Batcast, of course. Lots of these labels have, have podcasts now. Yeah, Alternative Tentacles, it's the one that keeps on popping up in my head is like, if we could still do a podcast after this one, that's the one I would love to do in chronological order. Well, we will if no one beats us to it. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? Someone will do it in the next eight years before we're done this. Yeah, maybe. Number seven, The Australian Rock Show, uh, hosted by these two brothers, Colin and Dennis. Uh, they play some great tunes on it. Not all Australian stuff. They've had like Danita Sparks on it, Ross the Boss, uh, Dan Baird was on it. Uh, but because I'm such a fan of so many of these bands, the highlights for me are the Aussie bands. He's had Chris Mazuak, uh, Dennis Tech, and others from Radio Birdman, uh, Mick Madu from the Screaming Tribesmen, Dave Evans, the original ACDC vocalist, and dating back to 2017 on episode 86, me. <laughs> that's right i was gonna say isn't isn't that the one you were interviewed on yeah. yeah okay number six life in the stocks hosted by matt stocks he's got interviews with an eclectic range of musicians brian baker billy gold uh black dahlia greg hetson jazz coleman uh and a favorite episode episode of mine was dave ruffy of the ruts that's a good one number five known pleasures their byline reads, a sometimes wry look at the music of the post-punk era, 78 to 84. Uh, these three buddies, they're all Australian. 
Um, it's really good. They do uh, a really good episode on the Stranglers. They, you know, they've done one on Pill, Devo, Bajas, Gang of Four, Magazine, and they know their shit. These guys. Number four, something to do, and of course, do is spelled D-U. It's all things Huskers and replacements. It's these two pals, Jude and Greg. Uh, they have the odd guest, for example, Sal Canestra of Sleeper and Serpico comes on an episode to talk about the replacements. Uh, they also hit on side projects, etc. Like they did one on Bob's new record. Uh, they do do an episode on Sugar. And Greg Pollard of Something to Do also has a great podcast with these guys, uh, Xavier and Jason, and it's called Where It Went, which is an in-depth exploration of the Revelation Records catalog. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. They did a really good two-parter on Gorilla Biscuits, Start Today. Uh, they've had tons of guests, lots of recommends I've gotten off of that show. They recently did Judge, Bringing It Down with Mike Judge and John Parcell as guests. So that's a good one, too. Number three, Metal Matters, hosted by Tombs frontman Mike Hill. Uh, he often has a lot kind of a rotating cast of co-hosts, but I, I always like it when he has on our podcast pal Randy Larson of Cable and Empty Flowers as a co-host. Right. They do these classic record series. Um, they've done Circus of Power, Vices, Skin Yard, Hollow Ground. They've also had Daniel House of Skin Yard and CZ Records on as a guest. Uh, they do Rollins Band, Hard Volume, Poison Idea, Feel the Darkness. That's a good podcast. The, both of those guys have great taste in music. Number two, The Lydian Spin. That's Lydia Lunch's podcast. Obviously, Lydia has a way with words and lots of friends in the industry. And I assume right. a lot of clout. Uh, she has lots of really cool guests. And the conversations are generally great. She has a co-host, Tim Dahl, another musician who's played with her in Retrovirus. He played in Child Abuse, Unnatural Ways. Uh, they've interviewed Martin Rev, Melvin Gibbs, Thurston, David Yao, Penelope Houston. Uh, one that I would recommend that I really enjoyed is the one with Cliff Martinez. I really only knew about Cliff uh, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, connection, but he also played with Lydia. He's played with the Dickies and the Weirdos. He played with Beefheart on one record. And now he does film scores for some pretty big movies, and he got started... Uh, doing scores for movies uh, by working on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Nice. Yeah. Hey, we've had like Pee Wee on the show a couple of times here this year already. Yeah. Remember on the Master Dick episode? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number one, and this is actually my number one. It's the End on End podcast. Brian Gaffey and our podcast pal Jeff Kaplan from the great band Too Many Voices. They're doing the same thing we're doing, but with the Discord discography. And they put in the work, and they know their shit, too. They talk about all kinds of stuff and have hit me to a bunch of great bands, and they have a lot of cool guests, too. Uh, they take little detours from time to time, which I really enjoy. They recently had on Vic Bondi. Uh, Tim Kerr of The Big Boys and Poison 13, they also had Don Ziantara on. Yeah, definitely don't sleep on the End on End podcast. That's it, Ryan. You know, I find a new podcast every other day that I kind of get addicted to. So I'm going to do 
like another list sometime in the new year. I could easily have done a list of 50. So if anybody wow. out there enjoys this or finds something you like, I hope you do, uh, stay tuned because I'll do another one of these. Right on. Yeah. What do you have, Ryan? That's it? That's it. That's it? Other okay, than I was for... going to mention Desolation Centers out on DVD for you. Woo! Thank you, my friend. That's your 2020 Mojack holiday gift guide right there, Desolation Center. <laughs> yeah, there's just one. Get it. Um, all right, so I have a bit of a different type of spiel this week, and I was I had some inspiration from last week's episode when we were talking about Seven Seconds, the oh, band. Okay. So this has absolutely nothing to do with year-end wrap-up, nothing like that. I just went on a seven seconds kick and you asked me, you know, what about that record ourselves? Where does that fit in? Right. And, and I thought what I would do as a, uh, a, a Mojack pod gift guide for you, perhaps is I'm going to give you a triple S section now. Okay. Seven seconds spotlight. Are you oh. ready? <laughs> oh, I'm ready. I, I've okay. got that record. Uh, ourselves is on my phone. No, okay. it's in the well, queue. It's in the queue. Excellent. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to get you, um, in rapid fire order, the 13 releases that I count as kind of like my, my seven seconds collection. Okay. 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 So here you go. Um, and again, seven seconds, they wrapped it up after 38 years. I think it was last year, maybe 2018 or whatever. But um, depending who you ask, though, they were they formed in late 79 or early 80. Reno, Nevada, the brothers, Kevin Seconds and Steve Youth were the mainstays. Um, at the start, Kevin Seconds was on guitar and vocals, Steve Youth on bass, and Troy Mowat on drums. Kevin and Troy were on every release and Steve was on almost every release. He was basically on every release except for the Praise EP. Um, Seven Seconds though, really important because they brought these positive ideals to hardcore. They were part of that youth crew era. Hardcore that's really associated with straight edge, anti-racist, positive attitude, hugely important to hardcore in the early 80s and also later to melodic hardcore and even emo type music. Unfortunately, some people call some of the mid-era Seven Seconds records proto-emo, which makes me want to barf a little in my mouth when I hear that. Makes you want to proto-puke? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, And interestingly, the name Seven Seconds, it's a reference to the seven-second tape delay in U.S. radio broadcasting. Didn't know that until I started looking into this. So what does that mean? Are, well, oh, like in case you swear on the air or whatever? Exactly. Ah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Seven seconds. So here are like my, this This is my stable of 13 release. I've got other ones and stuff like live records, but these are the ones that you need to know. Are, are, Alt- is this in order, Ryan? This is in order of chronologic, like chronological release order. That's what order this is in. Okay. All right. But people will take issue with the order I have them in, at least, especially the early ones too. Um, but we'll see how it goes. So the first one you should know about is alt.music.hardcore, which is a comp 
from 1995, but it collects the Skins, Brains, and Guts EP, Committed for Life EP, and A Blast from the Past EP. This has songs like Racism Sucks, This Is My Life, We're Gonna Fight, The Kids Are United, uh, which is a bit of a rocker song. This is really raw, seven seconds, and this is that era where they're always going before every song. One, two, one, two, three, four. And then they just go into that really fast, hardcore oompa beat. Alt.music.hardcore. Old School, number two. Uh, released 1983, originally as United We Stand, but I have the version released 1991 on Headhunter and Cargo. This has got the classic, or the, this has the classics, Here's Your Warning, Boss, Young Till I Die, No Class, No Way, You Lose, and uh, a mid-tempo classic, You're Out of Touch. Great sing-along vocals. This one is a bit repetitive, but they're really just perfecting their sound here. But then you get into their third uh, record in my my kind of list the crew 1984 byo and here we go this is 24 tracks it's even faster hardcore with slicker production they added a guitarist uh, dan posniak they've re-recorded here's your warning boss young till i die you lose um, the song bully is a bit of a rework of the song out of touch but my favorite track on the crew is a song called trust just awesome and then there are live tracks from 85 Fender's Ballroom, where the mixing engineer was Brett Gerwitz, actually. Hmm. Then out of, out of the early era, we get to my favorite record, Walk Together, Rock Together, produced by Ian Mackay, who all, is also on backing vocals all over the record, engineered by Don Ziantara at Inner Ear Studios, BYO Records, 1985. I've got the, the CD version that has... Um, more live tracks from that Fender's Ballroom show. But uh, Steve Youth is now on lead guitar on this one, Ron Dog on rhythm guitar, and John Spizhughes on bass. This has got the classics like Regress No Way, which is really a rework of No Class No Way. Out of Touch is on here again. We're going to fight. Remains to be seen. Walk Together, Rock Together. Strength is like their opus at two minutes and 24 seconds. Mm. Um, and Still Believe is probably my favorite track, which also shows up on, I think, your favorite record, New Wind. BYO, 1986, Positive Force. They've lost Ron Dog, and only Steve Youth is on guitar now. And they've got a guy, Joseph Bansuelo on bass. I love my copy because it's on Positive Force and... BYO Canada Records mm. with a P.O. box of Edmonton, Alberta, box 4554. BYO Canada. Love that. <laughs> now, is this, this is the radical shift here. This is, we're starting like the transition era with the New Wind record for sure. There's still some faster songs though, like New Wind and Still Believe. But then there are um, songs like Somebody Help Me Scream. Uh, Grown Apart, which is a bit funky, Man Enough to Care, lots of mid-tempo songs for sure. Uh, put these words to music. So they're really, really shifting away from that straight-ahead hardcore sound. But then they go way different with the Praise EP. Yes. Positive positive Force, BYO, 1986. Steve Youth, I don't believe, is on this record. But this is the first record where Bobby Adams makes his first appearance, who is, since the Praise EP, like onward, he's off and on on guitar from anything from the Praise EP onward. 
This is the record, though, where people really think Seven Seconds sounds like U2. Yeah, see, that's, but, my, that's my favorite one, because that's yeah. the first one I got. And it's great. It's a great 12-inch EP, but I totally understand as well why Kevin and Troy would want to do something different by this point. They had already written the book on like really straight ahead, hardcore, that sound, and they needed to do something different. So Praise is also a little goth sounding, mm-hmm. you know, I would say. Then there's the Ourselves record, 1988 on Restless Record Records. Steve Youth is back on bass. Bobby Adams is remaining on guitar. This is, again, now more mid-tempo, maybe less U2-ish, uh, maybe because Steve Youth is back in the band. For me, this one, though, sounds like a bit of a field day era Dagnasty or maybe even mid-era Doughboys sounding. It sound, It's good for me, but it's not as good as New Wind. I still like New Wind better than this one. See, now, uh, th- this is why I need to check that one out, though, because it follows Praise, which was like, that. To, that when I think of Seven Seconds, that's what I think of. Yeah, which is, that's that's odd. That people would think of praise. <laughs> well, it's just because that's right? you know, that's my cool. entry point. Yeah. Do yeah. you know the next one then? Soul Force Revolution. Yep. Yeah, it was in yeah. my. I think that was in my spiel's. Yeah. yeah. Re- Restless Records, 1989. Bobby Adams is out now. They've got a new guy, Chris Carnahan, on guitar. Steve is on bass again. Um, the opening track, Sat Satigraya. Um, it's kind of re- reminiscent of I still believe melodically the the vocals, um, but there's some there's some songs on here and and I want to try this on for you. Um, the song like Busy Little People it's a bit Fugazi esque, hey? mm-hmm. maybe sounds a little bit like Soulside as well. I I kind of felt like instead of Seven Seconds crossing over into metal, they kind of crossed over into DC post hardcore. That's kind of how I think of uh, Seven Seconds, and maybe it all started after the Walk Together, Rock Together sessions with Ian and Don. I don't know. And then we get to um, my, one of my first records, Out the Shizzy, 1993, Headhunter, Cargo. One of the worst album titles of all time, for sure. <laughs> uh, and and it's, uh, it's back to the Ourselves lineup with Bobby Adams returning to do all the guitars. It's way heavier now then praise ourselves soul force out the shizzy is way heavier um it starts off okay with a song called shizzy again terrible name uh, but then it really tapers off unfortunately into some forgettable funky songs for me anyways um then they do their first major label record the music the message on epic in 1995 body bobby adams is out again this record though it's kind of a mid-tempo record. It kind of sounds a bit like Rancid. If you listen to listen, like if you listen to it, I don't know if that that's if you ask me, kind of sounds like Rancid. Even the bass playing and the snare sounds. The problem though, I think is that all of the bands that that came after 7 Seconds that scooped their sound that were really influenced by 7 Seconds, they had already kind of made it. And then when the major labels in the mid-90s were scooping up all the bands, my guess is that they were like, the producer was going, well, let's kind of make you sound like this uh, rancid stuff, you know? Isn't that always the way, though? It totally is. It totally is. The pioneers Um, always get the arrows, man. Exactly. And then 
seven seconds for their final three records they really go back to kind of their original sound way way back to the early 80s with uh, a trio of records good to go came out in 1999 bobby is back in there and they're back to that old classic double time sound it's not the greatest record for me it kind of gets a little bit repetitive but it, i mean it's good if you want to listen to that type of seven seconds it's good um they're Second last record, Take It Back, Take It On, Take It Over, Side One Dummy, 2005. Um, the same lineup again, keeping that old classic double time sound, mixed and mastered by none other than Bill Stevenson. This one's better than Good To Go For Me. And there's a couple of tongue-in-cheek, so- well, one tongue-in-cheek song on it called YPH, called Your Parents Hardcore, <laughs> kind of uh, making fun of themselves for being around for so long. Then the final record, which of this later era, good to go, take it back. This one, leave a light on, my favorite by far. It's on Rise Records 2014. Bit of a break, right? Like, take it back was 2005, leave a light on 2014. Mm-hmm. Same lineup again. This is the best one for me, though, of their later era, old school, hardcore records. The songs are more distinct, more memorable. The production's more raw. And it really reminds me of um, a lot of bands that... I'm a big fan of that were definitely influenced by seven seconds bands like ignite, even some down by law, early down by law records kind of sound like influenced by seven seconds and kind of reminiscent of this record, leave a light on. So you were complaining that there's no seven seconds documentary. (laughs) So there are the 13 that you should check out. Um, You probably know most of them. And if I were to recommend, like, out of any of those, which ones you, like, you must own, you must own everything from The Crew to Soul Force Revolution, and then you must own that last one, Leave a Light On. Okay. Well, I think Trust Records is reissuing Walk Together, Rock Together, I think. So maybe I'll, be pick, cool. maybe I'll pick that one up. Yeah, Walk Together, Rock Together, that was probably other than the crew, Walk Together is the best. And it's definitely that Inner Ear Studios production with Ian Mackay on backing vocals. That album is just unstoppable. Actually, I think it's an EP, strictly speaking, but mine has got those extra live tracks on it. Hmm. Maybe this was part of the EP collection you mentioned, but what is Skins, Guts, and Brains? That's one I see, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, early seven inches yeah, type stuff. Okay. Yeah, well, I me- I mentioned like Skins, Guts, and Brains, that's collected on that alt music hardcore right. one that I mentioned right off the bat. Okay. Which is like really raw, oompa hardcore stuff. Okay. Yeah. So something, there, there you go. Some seven seconds on your to-do list for the holiday season. And Kevin Seconds has albums under that, under his own name too, right? Yeah, he has kind of folky stuff. That's okay. He's a great singer, actually. Like, the one thing about those mid-era Seven Seconds records, and even the last one, Leave a Light On, is you can really get a sense of how good of a singer he he was mm-hmm. because it's really hard to, you know, when you're, when you're making hardcore sing-along songs, it's really hard to get super <laughs> melodic and intricate and stuff. Okay. So I was in a big seven seconds kick. Right on, I man. I think I'm, good. I'm probably good for 2020 now. 
Right on. Well, I'm going to check some of that stuff out. Hey, Ryan. Yeah, man. Evolution. <laughs> History lesson, part one. So, Brent, I know you're going to probably kick us off into an intro on this record here, uh, the SWA CD evolution. But before you do, let's not forget that for this episode, our final episode of the year, we're in a particular zone. We're in the comp zone? We are, my friend. <laughs> yeah, thanks for pointing that out, man. I totally, totally slept on that. That's great. Yeah, we're in the comp zone for the rest of this episode. Let's do it. Okay. So, as you mentioned, this is CD only. It's one hour, nine minutes of SWA action. It's split evenly across the first three albums, which is why it's subtitled 85 to 87. Uh, there's six songs from each record for a total of 18 songs. We've talked about these records before on episode 53, which was Your Future If You Have One, which came out in 1985. Sex Doctor, which was episode 73, 1986. And episode 93 for the album 93. That came out in 1987. And that's the one where we interviewed Meryl Ward, by the way. And then most recently, we did episode 153, Arroyo. Notice there, Ryan, um, we've got episode 53, 73, 93, and 153. Yep. This is the odd man out at yep. 157. Yep. That's really all I have. We, you know, we kind of did the history of the band in those episodes. Greg, like you mentioned, he kind of recaps the band's history in this interview. But if you want more, maybe... Uh, go back and check out some of those episodes. With that, do you want to throw it over to Greg? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Greg Cameron. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm wondering, Greg, can you take me back to how you got started? Where, where did you grow up? Well, uh, I grew up in the South Bay of LA, uh, specifically Gardena is my hometown. You ever hear of it? Just the Caius song. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, also, the Beastie Boys refer uh, refer to it, uh, the song, What You Want. Oh, okay. I'm the illest motherfucker from here to Gardena. <laughs> awesome. And the reason why they say that is because uh, Mark, their keyboard player, and uh, Mario C., their producer, are both from Gardena. Oh, okay. In fact, I used to go to school with Mario's little sister. Oh. Catholic grade school. Oh, cool. So, uh, my hometown is Gardena, but I've lived all over the South Bay various times. I've lived in Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, Hawthorne, and Torrance. So okay. those are all all within the South Bay of Los Angeles. Right. So where did you go to high school? I went to high school in Torrance at uh, Catholic High School, Bishop Montgomery, mm -hmm. class of 84. So I started there in eighty. Right before the summer after my freshman year uh, is when I met Ray Cooper. Right. Uh, we were both in band class together. Ah, so you were a band student on drums? Well, that's what I wanted to play. Uh, yeah. I'd wanted to drum my entire life, but never had a chance to. So I figured, hey, here's my chance. Right. And uh, the band teacher found out that my older brother had a trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody wanted to play trumpet except one other guy, so... 
when she found that out, she said, no, actually, we've got 14 people that want to play drums and you're playing trumpet. So that, that was my uh, my gig for that moment. All right. And then uh, what's the entry point into punk rock? Is it Ray? Yes. Ray was the, the introduction. Uh, he was actually a couple grades ahead of me, uh, my older brother's grade. I actually, we weren't friends in band class, but I, I had to go into the lunch area for the upperclassmen, uh, which typically freshmen uh, aren't allowed, uh, to go talk to my brother about something. And he was sitting with Ray, and uh, we started talking, and that's basically how our friendship started okay. at that point. But he was the one, I went over to his house one day after school, and he was the one who introduced me to punk rock. I I heard the name Black Flag mentioned in uh, freshman religion classes, the uh, Franciscan priest, Father Tom, uh, beat one of my classmates over the head with his knotted rope because he had black flag written on his peachy folder. I don't, a lot of people don't know what a peachy folder is. It's kind of a West Coast thing. But yeah. uh, those were the yellow f- colored folders that everybody used to keep their uh, schoolwork in. Right. He had the bars Anyhow, on there. <laughs> yeah, he had the bars on there and the logo. And remember Father Tom saying, we don't want that black flag stuff john and i was like black flag what's what's black flag and uh so ray introduced me to black flag i I remember very well he played the six pack ep uh, descendants fat ep um uh sex pistols the residents i mean he he baptized me for several (laughs) hours uh one evening wow and that was and it blew me away i mean that was my introduction there was no going back after that. Were you a rocker before that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was listening, you know, Rush, Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't really buying records. My, I, I had older siblings that were buying all the records, so I would just listen to what um, they were buying. And my, my, uh, one of my older brothers was buying everything from the Kinks to uh, New Van Halen. Right. Uh, you know, back in the late seventies there. And I, I love that stuff, but the, the first, I, I guess very basic introduction I had to punk rock was one of my older sisters bought some more eclectic stuff. Um, I can't even remember what it was at the time, but I remember thinking, wow, that's really different. Yeah. But it, it wasn't until I met Ray that I really learned about it. Now, what about shows, punk rock shows? Do you remember like the first show you went to? Uh, yes, it was the Ramones at the Hollywood Palladium in 1980, is it one or two? It might've been 81. Mm. Is that the Black Flag show? No, this was just a Ramones show. In fact, I don't even remember who opened, but, uh, that was my, my first punk rock show. And, uh, yeah, I think I was only, I wasn't even 15 yet. I was 14 years old when I went to that. I was still a freshman in high school. Okay, so what happens next? When do you start hanging out with Black Flag? Okay, so a uh, couple grades ahead of me, my one of my brother's best friends, uh, Christian, was already off to a community college, uh, El Camino College in, in Torrance. And he had met Bill Stevenson in one of his classes. 
who at that time, you know, had this band called The Descendants. And Ray and I heard about it. We're like, oh, my God, The Descendants, you know, <laughs> playing the uh, playing that fat EP all the time. Right. And uh, and uh, Ray was just leaving high school. And um, Christian said, well, they're looking for a new singer because their their singer's going off to college. Thought maybe Ray should meet Bill and try out. And so Ray met with Bill and tried out and that was it. He was in the band Hmm. and I thought, Oh my God, this is great. I can go to the practices. I could check all this out. And so I started going to all the descendants practices, Ah. uh, with, with Ray. So why, uh, why Ray? Was he a singer in a band? No, Ray, Ray, Ray is a multi uh, instrumentalist. He in band class, he could play anything. They were giving him French horn, tuba, saxophone, clarinet. I mean, the guy could play anything. But just one of those guys that could just pick yeah. up an instrument. Yeah. Exactly. But his love was guitar. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, I don't know, I guess uh, Christian thought maybe this was, you know, a, a thing that Ray could do. Right. And Bill really liked Ray, so that was pretty much a done deal, like, right away. But Ray actually only did two shows singing. One was a a birthday party or it wasn't even a birthday party. It was just a party in Redondo beach and the nip drivers played and, uh, trying to remember, I think red cross might've played too. Um, I can't quite remember, but he sang at the party. Couldn't really hear anything cause the PA wasn't very good, but right. that was his first ever gig in front of the public. And then uh, the next gig was at the Ukrainian Cultural Center with Descendants opening for Black Flag, and that's when Chuck Biscuits was playing drums for Black Flag. Right. And and so it was only those two performances, and then Milo kind of came back and said, well, you know, I can do some shows, and then uh, they moved Ray over to guitar, which is where he really wanted to be anyway. Right. And, and uh, I think they only did one show with two guitars at Mi Casita and Torrance, so... And that was the last show that Frank ever did with the Descendants, mm-hmm. yeah, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I think that was it. Were you around when Frank left? Do you have any insight into into why he he left? Oh, uh, well, he was already. Uh, Frank was a very interesting person. He was one of the most trippy people I'd ever met at, you know, my young, fourteen year old, fifteen year old self, and. Uh, I, there was already conflict with Frank to some extent just within himself. And, you know, he may have had some direct issues with the band too, that I don't really know about. Mm-hmm. But when Bill put a pause on descendants to join black flag full time, I thought, well, Hey, you know, maybe I can try to fill in for bill. Uh, you know, <laughs> I hadn't even been drumming for a whole year yet. Right. Uh, you know, since the first time I picked up sticks at Ray's house. And, um, but I, I tried. And I, so I would go to the sentence rehearsal place and jam with Ray and Tony. And I was trying to learn the set list, uh, playing Bill's practice kit. And maybe one or two times after doing that, Frank showed up and I remember him standing in the doorway and, uh, he just, he came to get his stuff and he said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm done. And, you know, uh, me and Tony and Ray just kind of looked at him like, oh, okay. And he left. And that was the last time I ever saw Frank Hmm. ever. Okay. So you and Tony and Ray are jamming. Did you talk about like 
was this going to be the descendants? It it wasn't going to be the descendants because you can't really have the descendants without Milo and Frank and Bill, right? Right. right. So uh, it was going to be called uh, the name. The working name was the Ascendants, right. and at the time, uh, Tony was pretty upset with Bill because Bill tried to do both bands at the same time, but you know, Black Flag's really a full-time gig. I mean, they're going to tour, they're going to record. And so there was definitely some resentment on Tony's part, but he wanted to keep it going. And so did Ray. And I definitely did. And so at that point, uh, we started trying out singers and mind you, I'm still trying to build up my chops. I'm 15 years old. Right. Barely playing drums for a year, and those are not easy songs to play. For sure. For a, you know, experienced drummer, let alone uh, one as young and inexperienced as I was. So, we tried out uh, a few a few different singers, but one singer we tried out was Phil or Philo, who right. later became guitar player in Swa. Right. Yep. And he didn't cut it for the singing role. We thought. But what I didn't know is I wasn't cutting it for the drumming role either. And after several practices, uh, I didn't get a phone call that we were going to jam. So I had my mom drop me off at the uh, practice pad in Lamita anyway. And when I got there, they were trying out another drummer, uh, Tony and Ray. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I had no ride home (laughs) at the moment. That's awkward. I was stuck there, so I just had to sit there in the practice room and uh, watch them uh, jam. Uh, I think it was the drummer from Modern Warfare, uh, mm. and he was a really nice guy and super funny, and he could uh, he could do an imitation of Rodney Bingenheimer that was uh, spot on. <laughs> so that's something I remember uh, pretty well. Tough way to but, find out you're not working out. Yeah, so it was. Uh, I got a ride home from Ray, and it was a very quiet ride home. I didn't say much, um, and I was determined to keep on drumming. And actually, that that night really gave me some motivation to to step it up and learn. So I actually called Bill out on the road. I, I forget what town, Black Flag. He was actually out on the road at this point, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I said, hey, or actually, I didn't call Bill. Uh, I called his mom. <laughs> I called Bill's mom, and I said, uh, does Bill check in with you? Or will you be hearing from him? She's like, well, I don't know, honey. You know, he, he may call in, but I, you know, I don't know. I said, well, I'm trying to get a hold of him because I want to see if I can uh, take his drums home, take him over to my grandmother's house and, you know, practice on him. And she said, you know, honey, I'm sure he'd be fine with that. You go ahead and you take his drums and I'll, I'll let him know. And so I did. I went and uh, packed up what was left of his drum kit. There wasn't a lot there. Basically just the shells and some broken stands because he'd taken everything else with him. Right. And uh, I, I took the drums to my grandmother's house and I basically practiced for myself or by myself for an entire year. Wow. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was, and I got pretty good. I, I could actually play all the Descendant songs. By the end of that year, I was uh, pretty pretty solid with it. Maybe and, uh, uh, maybe the spite out of, <laughs> of uh, you know the situation of getting kicked out uh, spurred you on to to really go for it. Oh, 
Well, there was a part of me that was like, I'll really show those guys. But the other part of it was I really loved playing the drums right. and I really wanted to be good at it. And uh, r regardless of what happened with, with the bands. But um, during the time I had them at my grandmother's house, Bill would actually come over uh, every now and then and jam on them, too, just to get away from, you know, the, the people he was living with, basically, on the road. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, he would come over and jam by himself at my grandmother's house. At the time, Black Flag was rehearsing at this uh, rehearsal studio in Long Beach, and they were flat broke. They were in the middle of the lawsuit with Unicorn Records and had no money. And Bill's drums were completely broken down. And then on top of it, their practice pad got broken into, and then a bunch of the uh, stuff that he had left got stolen. Mm -hmm. So between it being broken and stolen, he basically just had drum shells again. And he said, well, we're moving to a new pad in Redondo Beach to jam. He said, why don't you let me take this brand new drum hardware you have and borrow it, and then you can come over to the practice pad anytime we're not playing and, and jam. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, okay, that's a great idea. And uh, they would practice for hours and hours every day. I mean, I've never seen a band practice as much as Black Flag. It was insane uh, to the point where I think Bill and Kira were both causing themselves some uh, joint and tissue damage from uh, <laughs> all the hours playing every day. But right. anyway, I would do that. I would, I would go over either between their practice sets or when they were done, and I would just go play by myself. And uh, at that time, Chuck was off in Europe, uh, I think in Germany, because, you know, he's got relatives from Germany and stuff. And uh, he had just gotten back uh, right about the time they moved into the new practice pad in Redondo Beach. And uh, he was still booking the band. And so upstairs was the global, the booking office. And then downstairs was the practice pad, which was had one of the lowest ceilings I've ever seen in a practice pad. And it was kind of dangerous because you know, everything was nailed to the ceiling. Uh, they would find used carpet and put up several layers of it. And of course it was super nasty with, you know, crap falling down on your head every time there was vibration. And, but there was also nails, you know, that nail heads sticking out. So you couldn't really jump around too much in there. You'd probably impale your skull. Right. But, uh, at the time Chuck was trying to put worm back together and, uh, he was having some conflict with them and, he started coming down just to jam with me because I was playing by myself and, you know, it was great to have somebody to jam with. And, uh, he, uh, would book by day and then come down in the evenings and we would jam. And, uh, one day I was upstairs after we had been playing and, uh, I can't remember if he was talking to Lou or Ed or, or which band member it was, but he was expressing his frustration at their lack of motivation Mm -hmm. And he just said, he said, you know what? I'm jamming with this cool kid downstairs and, you know, we're having a pretty good time. He said, I think I'll just do that. And he hung up the phone. And <laughs> that, that was the beginning of our uh, musical partnership. So when you say jamming with Chuck, what are we talking? Are you playing worm songs or are you just letting fly? No, just Chuck was really into being improvisational at that time. And uh, we would just. Chuck is a master at riff writing. I mean, Billy used to tell me that all the time. He's like, Chuck could write like 100 songs in a night if, if he wanted to. Right. 
And so he would just come up with riffs and I would just jam along. And that was, you know, what we did for many months. And then at some point, Ted Falcone comes into the picture. Right. So, well, let's see. First, before that even happened, uh, we were still just jamming. It was 84 Black Flag Tour was ramping up and I was just about to graduate from high school. And Chuck said, and, you know, I'd, I'd apply to go to UCLA if I was going to get an engineering degree or something. Right. And uh, Chuck said, hey, uh, you want to go on tour this summer? I'm like, well, doing what? We don't really have a band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why let said, that well, stop you? <laughs> yeah, right. He said, no, it'll be like an improv thing. It'll be me, you, Greg Ginn, and Joe Biza from Saccharine Trust, uh, you know, because we'll all be touring together anyway. And basically just jam for 30 minutes <laughs> and so <laughs> that was the birth of october faction right which you know was much loathed by many and you know adored by a few and uh it was it was pretty crazy uh my my job in that band was just to try to hold down uh some semblance of rhythm that people could lock to so that when everyone got done with their simultaneous solos they had something to kind of meld back into right any standout shows for you from that tour well the first one mainly because well it was my first time ever performing in front of a of a live audience at a venue and it was at the cabaret metro in chicago and here i am in front of you know however many people the venue holds it was a sold out show it was packed and i'd ever played in front of people in, in my life and they had recently installed a chunk of the ACDC touring PA system that they had acquired, which was massively powerful for the time. No kidding. <laughs> and so I, I get up on stage, you know, and I Chuck starts doing a riff and I start playing and the PA is hammering so hard that chunks of the ceiling are falling down onto the stage. And I thought, wow, this is super cool. Yeah, uh, it was a. Uh, it was a, a, a very, very good experience for a first-time show. It could have could have gone way worse. No kidding. I don't know how well people like the band, but uh, the feedback, at least, was, was pretty good. Right. Do you recall recording that second October Faction record at Mystic? Yeah, I do. It was, uh, it was pretty simple. They put on a 30-minute reel of tape, and we would just jam for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it was... We did two reels, and that was that. That was that. Yep. <laughs> I, yeah, I. You know, it's funny. I, I, I listened to the Tom Tricoli interview about, you know, how it went down, and I, I didn't realize there was so much controversy behind that record and 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 grief uh, until pretty recently. On the second one. Yeah, on the second one. Yeah. Yeah, the, the first one I had my own grief with, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the content. Yeah. Okay, so now all that touring's done. You're back at the same uh, space again, or is it moved by this point? Oh, the uh, yeah, no, it's still there. Okay. The the global studios. Right. On Artesia Boulevard. Um, yeah. So Chuck said, "Well, I want to I want to do uh, a band now." And then I didn't know about the whole SWA thing, you know, the original concept of SWA, the manifesto that they recited at the, was it the Elks Lodge in Culver City. 
The Throbbing um, Gristle Show. Yeah, The Throbbing Gristle Show. Yeah. Uh, I've learned about it afterward, but, right. uh, you know, uh, Chuck explained to me the concept of how he came up with the name by rolling rolling a die three times after assigning an alpha value to the numbers and, you know, the name that came up was saw. I'm like, okay, well, that that's fine by me. Right. And so, yeah, we started trying out guitar players and um, Ted Falcone was one of the first ones. And Ted was awesome. Mm-hmm. Great guy. One of my favorite people. But it ultimately didn't work out. It might have had something to do with, at the time, he would come in with a couple 40-ounce beers. And by the time we got to the next practice, I, he couldn't really remember the tune. So right. <laughs> that, that kind of lent itself to looking for somebody else. And then uh, that, what, one of the somebody else's was Ray, because the descendants weren't happening and the ascendants weren't happening. Uh, so Ray wasn't doing anything with Tony anymore. And we were still friends. I was not holding a grudge um, at all, really. Right. And I was actually happy to have Ray come play. I mean, he was my best friend. So, you know, it's always nice to have your best friend in the band with you. Did you ever play any jams with Simon Smallwood on vocals? I believe Simon did come down uh, once or twice. Uh, you know, my recollection isn't that clear, but I, I do remember him coming mm-hmm. and hanging out. And then how did Merrill come on board? Was that just Chuck asking him from knowing knowing Merrill from the Black Flag connection and from Overkill? Yes. I, I, I didn't know Merrill at all at the time. I met him after Chuck brought him in. But, uh, you know... To me, he was like a super cool Hollywood hipster dude. And it's funny because, uh, you know, in retrospect, Merrill was one of the earliest of the L.A. punk rock scene. I, I had no idea what his history was. And, you know, I was a newbie still. Right. But, uh, you know, going back and listening to the old Black Flag commercials and stuff, Merrill had been involved with the, uh, the L.A. punk scene for a long, long time. Yeah. Do you know how you how it came to be that you played on the Love Doll Superstar record? I I think Jordan was the one who roped us into that one, uh, Jordan Schwartz. Right. Because, you know, Jordan was working for SST at the time, I believe, and um, they needed tunes for the soundtrack. So I remember the lyrics and stuff getting written for that and coming together, and I don't remember the details too much about... Uh, how the song was actually written, but I do remember recording it at, uh, oh gosh, whose studio was that? Um, would it, would oh, it have been Phil Newman's studio? Phil, yeah, Phil Newman from Painted Willie. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the most memorable part about that recording for me was when uh, Richie Ford almost got electrocuted <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> there was a, a wiring problem with it, and uh, he kept getting shocked on the microphone. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, there, I said, there's got to be a grounding problem somewhere. So I said, well, one thing you can test to make sh- to see if you're going to get shocked is you can actually touch your guitar to the microphone, guitar strings. Mm-hmm. And if there's a loud buzz, then you know you've, you've got a problem. And uh, so Richie touched his guitar strings to the microphone, and there was a big blue spark, and the strings broke. So <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, you might not want to put your lips on the yeah. microphone. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I remember it was a really fun little recording session, laying that down, and uh, 
it uh, it went pretty quickly, pretty smoothly, and um, I thought the tune was really cool. I love the lyrics. I, I think they're they're hilarious. Okay, so at some point, Bill's out of Black Flag, and the Descendants are recording again, and you were around for some of those sessions as well. Yeah, so that's a, a interesting story. Right after Bill left Black Flag, they were trying out drummers, uh, Greg and Kira, and. Um, uh, Anthony Martinez had been jamming with him for about two weeks. And then one evening I was going to go down and play drums, just jam. And after they were done and, uh, Greg and Kira literally cornered me in the practice room and said, well, what do you think of Anthony? I said, Oh, you know, I I like Anthony. He's good, but you know, he's, he's no Bill Stevenson. Right. Cause I was used to black flag having a certain type of drummer Mm -hmm. and, uh, Anthony's really smooth, super talented drummer, but I didn't think he was like a, you know, black flag drummer. But anyways, but I, I, that's what I told him. I said, I think he's, he's really good drummer, but just not, you know, he's not Bill. And Greg said, well, would you want to do it? And I was like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, and, and Kara said, yeah, do you want to do it? And I'm like, uh, I really did. Of course. I mean, I knew the songs, very well um but i had just started swa with chuck and i i had a real loyalty to chuck and uh i also knew that he had been basically pushed out of the band yeah and uh i i couldn't do that to him uh, you know i don't know if it was 12 years of catholic school or just me but i i just said i i can't do that i just started a band with chuck and you know i'm supposed to go to school and blah 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 and so I turned it down. Mm. And, uh, but yes, uh, to answer your question about the Senate sessions, Bill got the band back together. Ray told us he was going to leave Swap um, right before we started recording our first album. And uh, uh, I went and hung out with him in the studio quite a bit for that, rec- that album recording. Kind of played a pseudo assistant engineer, changing tape reels and loading up cassettes and you know simple stuff like that but gave me an excuse to be there and uh yeah it was really cool and even though bill had left black flag uh he still borrowed greg's guitar amp (laughs) so that ray could use it to record the album yeah what an interesting record like that's the the record they literally practiced for i think like two weeks acoustically almost before they went into the studio yeah yeah they just they they just went for it bill wanted to get it done like i think he he wanted to purge whatever you know had been brewing up with him with black flag and he just wanted to get on with things and and get his old band going again yeah greg i'm wondering if we can go through some of these tracks on this swa evolution comp sure okay so the first song is Simon's Thing, and this is off the Your Future If You Have One record. Now, do you know, is that a reference to Simon Smallwood? I've always assumed that it is. Um, it, it is, but it was also kind of a double entendre in that it was also referring to Simon Le Bon. Ah, Duran Duran. As well. So it was kind of <laughs> both Simons, because they both have, you know, a thing. Right. Like Simon Smallwood was... He was an intense dude, super cool, so intense. 
then of course Simon Laban was like super pop superstar. So I don't know if it was specifically intended for either one of them, but I do remember Merrill saying both of them at some point. Hmm. How was Simon intense? Can you elaborate? <laughs> well, if you ever saw him sing, I mean, you can hear it in the worm tracks. I mean, he is mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's like him and Rollins, they're, they're very different people, but they also, their intensity remind me of each other. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever seen singers as intense as either one of them live on a stage. And Simon Smallwood is like, in some ways he's even more intense than Henry, but he also looks intense too. Like the shape of his face, very angular and, uh, his eyes. So he's intense looking and intense sounding, but he's not necessarily an intense person, but when he's in performance mode, he he's very intense. Okay. Big shoes for Merrill to fill for sure. Oh, Merrill's a, a different animal <laughs> for sure. Yeah. All right. We'll get to Merrill in a bit here. Um, backing vocals on this one, Cliff Samuels. Oh yeah. Cliff. Cliff, Cliff was the person, one of Black Flag's biggest fans, and basically kept SST afloat financially when they were in dire straits. Uh, Cliff and I, uh, we became pretty good friends. He would come to town at least once a year, like for the Toyota Grand Prix, and he had some really uh, high-end sports cars that he owned. He owned a Lotus Turbo Esprit, and I think he had a BMW M1, maybe a couple other cars I didn't know about, but... He would drive cross country from St. Louis and come visit, and uh, you know, uh, one or one or two years in a row, we went to the Toyota Grand Prix in Long Beach together because he really loved racing. So, yeah, he had uh, he had gone license plates, I believe. Oh, he had SWA license plates for a while too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was crazy. He would change them up quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've got Greg and Kira on backing vocals. Michael Boshears, who engineered the record. Do you remember Michael at all? Yeah, I do. I remember his uh, 80s haircut. <laughs> <laughs> he was a pretty reserved guy, pretty yeah. quiet. I don't think we talked a lot personally, but he was uh, he was a really cool dude. I remember that. Okay. Susie Gardner. Susie, yeah. Chuck's... Chuck uh, went out with her for a while, and um, she's also on the cover of the Worm uh, album. Yeah. Um, at the time Chuck was going out with her, when I knew her, she was uh, working at Club Lingerie, and I sold her my moped. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a pretty cool moped, and she needed transportation. So, uh, yeah. You know, and then, of course, she went on to help form L7. Right. But I, I had no idea she was a musician because I, I knew Susie, but I didn't talk to her a whole lot. You know, uh, she didn't come to band practices and stuff because she had to work or do her own thing. Rich Ford does some vocals, but I don't think he was playing in the band yet. Um, yeah, Rich was. Yep. Yeah, him and Ray were both on the album. You played live with that lineup with the two guitarists. Uh, we did. Yeah, in fact, it... on the, on the. Uh, the tour video, 1984, they're both in the band in that video. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was more like Ray was transitioning transitioning out of the band and Rich was coming in or they were 
both in at the same time. They were both in at the same time, but then when the Descendants, uh, when they reformed, Ray left the band. And I also think, I got the impression that Ray wasn't total, ha- totally happy being the rhythm guitar player. I think he, at the time he joined SWA, I don't think he was expecting a second guitar player to join, but, um, you know, okay. that's, that's how it went. Do you know where Rich came from? Was he working at SST already? I think Rich's brother knew Chuck uh, really well, Okay, uh, Mark. And um, Chuck had put out the feelers for a guitar player, and I think Mark had recommended Richie. Oh. Uh, Richie was in a band called the Frantic, Frantic Technoids before that, which totally matches because Richie's super nerdy guy. I mean, I'm a pretty nerdy guy, but like Richie's <laughs> way nerdy. Uh, and uh, he came and he stayed. Right on. And the record was produced by, by Greg. Do you know what kind of role he played as a producer? Oh, he was very hands-on. I mean, yeah, we recorded at Mystic, which is a very, very broken-down studio at the time. In fact, I remember Dave Ratt from Rat Sound coming over uh, the day we were setting everything up, and he was replacing blown drivers in the studio monitors and uh, <laughs> pr- providing extra outboard gear to supplement what they had, which was mostly broken gear and... I mean, I think the console was from the early to mid-70s, and it was super noisy, and it might have even been tubes. I, I can't remember. <laughs> but it was everything. The, 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 the multi-track machine was arcane. Uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. No kidding. <laughs> okay, the next song is Sine Cosine X. This one, for me, has a bit of a black flag feel in the main riff and it got me thinking when i was listening to it i wonder if any of these songs are black flag holdovers or if any of them are riffs like you said chuck was a real riff meister are they any are some of these the riffs that we're hearing are they stuff you guys things you guys jam together down there i think chuck came up with that post black flag i i don't know if I can't remember if he wrote it when we were just jamming together or if it's something he came up with before that. But even if he had pieces and parts from before, he would always integrate it with something newer that he came up with. But yeah, the 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 title for that song, I contributed to it. That My contribution was the, the way it went between a syncopated beat and a straightforward rhythm kind of remind me of how when you're, when you're graphing sine waves versus a cosine how they line up on the graph and they, 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 they kind of syncopate visually. And to me, the, the rhythm of the song was like that. So that's how it got its name. Oh, cool. Okay. The next track until you bleed this one for me, kind of, you know, we're talking about Simon Smallwood. Merrill for me is one of my favorite vocalists of any SST band. I think he's totally underrated and really, I, I agree with you, and I'm also surprised to hear that. Yeah, I just love his his kind of theatrical style, and he's a great singer, like, from a classical standpoint, like, as far as being able to carry a melody. Agreed. Yeah, tell me about him as a front man, though. Well, like you said, he's theatrical, he's got flamboyance. I think my, my impression is that he was heavily influenced by the... Uh, the glam rock scene yeah. of the East Coast. I remember Kurt Markham from Overkill saying, talking about Merrill, you know, 
coming out in dresses and makeup and stuff at the shows <laughs> and how it would piss off the punkers. And so me being a young, inexperienced, uh, more closed-minded person of the day, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. Part of me wished that we were a more straightforward rock and roll band, mm-hmm. but we were really kind of an art band. <laughs> For sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which was new to me. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know I was going to be in an art band when I started playing drums, but that's kind of what it was. And, you know, looking back on it, I, I love SWA now more than I ever did when I was playing in SWA. For sure. Well, and having hearing you say that is making me think about some of the shows you played too. It really opened you up to some diverse shows. Like, I mean, I mean, you guys, I'm sure shared the stage with Zoog's Rift. Yes. And that would have been no problem stylistically. Paper bag. Oh yeah. yeah. It was, it was, uh, being part of the SST family was the best thing that could have ever happened to me as far as opening my mind and my eyes and, exposing me to a lot of diversity and culture, period. Yeah. Okay, the next song is Creeps, and we've got Paul Rossler on keys. Yeah, that's right. Paul Paul made a guest appearance on that. Islands in the Freeway. This one so- starts with Chuck just doing that, the Chuck Dukowski. His signature finger style playing. What was it like for you uh, being part of a rhythm section with Chuck Dukowski. It must have really helped your playing a lot. It, it's a challenge for sure. Um, because Chuck would come up with a lot of non-standard timings and then make parts together that were not necessarily standard timing as well. And it, I did. I had to jump through some hoops to play along with that stuff. <laughs> you know, And it did. It, it really, it was for my playing, it was very good. Yeah. 10 Miles of Hate, kind of a, a ballad swa style. Was that one you played live? Yes. Yeah, we, we didn't play it live later on, but in the early days we played it as part of our regular set. It was, uh, I, actually, I really love that song. It's, it's drudgery and it's, it, it's hitting hard. In fact, I wasn't a big fan of the production on the first album, but I do like the way that song sounds. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next record we're going to go into sex doctor. The, the lead track off of that record is the next one on this compilation, Catacombs. And now we're down to just Rich Ford for this record. Did you ever right. talk about bringing in a, a new second guitar player? No, I think when Ray left, we were content with one guitar player. I, I never felt like we needed to. One of my favorite SWA songs, Sea and Sky, is actually written by Ed Dankey. Yes, genius song. Yeah. Beautiful song. It's a really great song. Do you know was that would that have been a worm holdover maybe? Uh I believe it was. Well, I know Ed wrote it back in those days for sure. And uh it it was actually one of my favorite songs to play too cuz I'm a I'm a pop guy at heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm hard too, but I I love pop. Yeah. Okay, the next song is The Sex Doctor and you are the sex doctor. Ah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I just wrote the, uh, basically the bass track for that song. Um, cause I'm not a stringed instrument player and right. I don't play the trumpet anymore either. But, <laughs> but you wrote um, it on a bass or you like hummed it? Yep. I just wrote it on a bass and, uh, 
I did not have anything to do with the lyrics uh, or the song title other than the fact that Merrill named the song after my nickname. But, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking the lyrics were pretty cheesy. <laughs> but, you know, who am I to, who am I to judge? Yeah. Merrill's job was to write the lyrics, and I, I was fine with that. Do you recall the photo shoot for this record with Moshe Baraka? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. All the makeup and the uh, hair and everything. Yeah. It's, when I look at that album cover, I, I, I just think of the terrible glam shots from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was supposed to be that way. Yeah. But, where, uh, where was it? Oh, gosh. I can't remember what studio it was at. It, it's too long ago. I'm, sh- I'm sure Merrill could tell you. It was in a studio, though. I, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Do you know who the cover model is? No, I just met her that one time. Um, I remember thinking she was super cute. <laughs> I thought maybe it was, you know, a friend of the band or something. Uh, friend of Merrill's and Moshe's, but uh, I don't think the rest of us knew her. Okay. Uh, the next song is Oklahoma. And this, I believe, is based on a true story. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> where, the one where I was... I was saved from sexual assault by a messed up auto mechanic. Uh, Rich told me about years after the fact. <laughs> Do you want to hear this story? Absolutely. I don't know you have to tell it now. Oh. Okay, so the van started breaking down outside Oklahoma. It sounded like it could be getting ready to throw a rod or something. And uh, the mechanic shop, we were the closest place we could take it, uh, was right on the outskirts of town. Uh, edge of town and right next door was a flea bag motel with you know what looked like 13 year old prostitute and broken air conditioners and anyway uh we were there almost a full week i think while this messed out mechanic rebuilt the engine who'd just gotten out of prison apparently <laughs> and rich relayed a story to me uh that they were doing smoking weed and doing crank <laughs> uh one one evening and uh the guy said to rich let's see if i can recall this story right he's all you know rich i i don't consider myself a homosexual or nothing but i love to suck men's dicks and fuck them in the ass (laughs) and he throws down a bag of meth in front of rich he says and this is just a little gift to you i don't mean nothing by it but you know I just want you to know, I think you're a really beautiful man. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so Rich is telling me this story. He said, I was really worried he was going to go after you because you're, you know, barely 18 years old, (laughs) skinny young thing. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, that was, uh, they should have put that in the song somewhere. (laughs) You got the hell out of Oklahoma. Oh, he did. He said mechanics on methadrine. That that's one of the lyrics in the song. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, you beat a hasty retreat out of there, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Here well, here's the thing. We so we're driving the van out of finally it's supposedly all done. The sun is setting, and we're driving out of town, and we start hearing all this rattling and weird noises coming from the engine, or we thought we were gonna be stuck again. And uh we popped the cover off the engine. This was the Misfits old van that they had get, they'd sold to Chuck for a few hundred bucks. So it it had been beaten hard. Right. Well, it turns out the mechanic didn't 
forgot to tighten down the bolts for the intake manifold. I mean, they were literally just finger tight. I can't believe the car even started, or the van even started. It was, uh, uh, we, we wound up spending about a good hour cranking down all the bolts on the outside, praying that the messed out mechanic remembered to tighten down the bolts on the inside. <laughs> but the van made it the rest of the tour. So, uh, I guess it was just the outer bolts that were loose. <laughs> Now, what kind of tour was this? Was this, this wasn't a Black Flag tour. Was this just yeah, a SWA tour? Uh, no, no, it was a 85 Black Flag tour. We were supposed to meet up with Black Flag in Detroit. That was supposed to be our first show of that leg of the tour. And we wound up missing, I, I, it was like three or four shows because the van was being, the engine was being rebuilt. And uh, we finally met up with them in Cincinnati at the jockey club. And I remember Henry was so pissed off at Chuck because everybody knew that the van apparently was in bad shape and probably should not be driven cross country. Right. I, th I think, you know, Joe and Greg had said, Chuck, you should just rent a van. And Chuck's like, well, we don't have any money, so we're just going to make this work. And, uh, I, I actually helped him change some belts and change the oil and, Changed some hoses on that van. Uh, and I think we did the shocks, too, uh, before we left for tour. But it wasn't enough, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> you got the I told but, you uh, so. <laughs> yeah, but we, we showed up at the jockey club, and Henry was, I just remember he was super pissed off at, at Chuck. Hmm. He got over it, though. Now, what was that like, uh, opening for Black Flag? Was that a tough gig for SWA? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a tough gig. I mean, I had a great time. It was best experience of my life coming straight out of high school. It, the only thing that was tough about it was I, it wasn't a lot of the crowds. It wasn't their cup of tea. They were probably expecting Chuck to be doing something more like black flag. Right. And you know, we, we were not black flag. We were a different band. And I think Merrill's flamboyancy wasn't everybody's cup of tea either. And that was a big, big part of, lack of appeal that Swab may have had for SST fans was was that combination of stuff. Did Chuck kind of get into that a little bit too? I've seen like, you know, some photos of him painting the hand on his face and stuff like that. Oh, the, the hand of fate. Yeah, yeah, I would shave his head occasionally and then he would do the, the hand of fate. But, you know, Chuck is a, he's an art guy. And like I said before, I think we were an art band. I didn't realize it at the time. You know, I thought we were a, a rock band, but really we were more of an art band. And um, yeah, that was about the extent of Chuck's makeup, though, was that the hand of fate impression on his face. Do you think, you know, that hurts Swa in the history books, maybe not being considered an art band, like people's expectations of the band? Uh, as far as popularity, yeah, it uh, could very well be. Um, one of the reasons why I left the band, really the only reason why I left the band, is because Chuck wanted to veer more into improvisation. And I was going the opposite direction. I wanted to play rock, yeah, straightforward. I, I was a little burned out on jamming because basically my entire upbringing in music with Chuck and SST Records was a lot of jamming and I wanted to be a hard rock band at that point. 
it's hard playing in a band with somebody who really likes jamming if you know that's not your thing well i loved it for a long time but there was a point where i'm like yeah you know i think i'd rather do something a little more straightforward yeah um and i tried i tried a few different bands going or join up with a few different bands, but of course none of them wound up panning out at least early on. I finally did some bands later on with, uh, Jula Bell, who was in Bulimia Banquet. And, uh, I did a band with her called, actually I was the original drummer of Bulimia Banquet. Right. The very first one, a band called Mark Spitz Freestyle, which also had Mike Weber from the Nip Drivers in it too. Okay. And that was a, that was a straightforward rock band, and I really did enjoy playing in that band, too. Tell me a bit about Jula Bell. We were just actually talking about her because we did the Pat Smear record, and she's, oh, right. she's on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jula is one of my longest friends. I met her when she started going out with Bill Stevenson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, gosh, we've been friends close to 25 years now? Long, no, longer than that. Jeez. Yeah, so Jula, we still stay in touch. She is one of my best friends. I've been in uh, two bands with her. We used to hang out all the time. And um, musically, we see eye to eye. And as friends, we're we're very good friends. Okay. Were you in Bulimia Banquet at the same time as Des? No. Um, I was the original drummer when she formed the band, but... I wasn't in it for very long because I had something else going on and I can't remember what it was, but I, I wound up jumping off and, and going to that other thing full time. Okay. At one point, I remember seeing that you were living, actually living with Greg Ginn and possi- yes. possibly starting a band with him. Yeah. What had happened was, um, oh gosh, what happened? Oh yeah. I'd been let go from my job. I had run into Greg. And he was just looking to jam. And he also needed some help at SSD. So we wound up jamming pretty much every day for a while. And uh, we wound up living in an apartment in Los Alamitos near uh, SST's location at the time for about a year. Oh, yeah. And the reason why that didn't work out is Greg was getting into sequencers, drum machines, and synth stuff. And, you know, I wanted to do a rock band right. <laughs> again. <laughs> And so we were talking one day. He's like, well, you know, why aren't you taking more interest in programming the Lindrum and, you know, maybe doing some sequence stuff? And I said, well, that's not what I really want to do. I want to play drums. I want a real bass player. At that time, he was recording bass lines into a DAT machine. Maybe plug it into the bass amp and just play back these endless loops of bass riff uh, over and over again. And then he would get on a guitar and start playing. Right. And that got really old really fast for me um and then he i mean one night we were talking he said oh yeah you know he said if i could i'd get rid of everybody in the band it would you know no bass players no drummers like he just didn't want to deal with people (laughs) he was literally didn't want to deal with people and um you know i i kind of laughed it off it didn't occur to me that he was serious of course (laughs) years later you know, looking back, it's like, no, he was completely serious. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and actually uh, did just that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, so, you know, I, I told him, I said, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't really get any excitement from programming the drum machine. Right. Uh, 
which I'd been doing for him. Oh gosh, he got one of the really early Korg drum machines back on the 85 Black Flag tour. And I would program loops in for him so he could jam in headphones and stuff. But I didn't think he wanted to make a, a career choice out of it. Right. But when I expressed my dissatisfaction with that, he just said, oh, well, you know, maybe we should part ways then. And I said, oh, okay. And that was it. Okay. Back to this evolution comp. The next track is Big Ride. I just love Rich's guitar playing on this. He was a real shredder. I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, distinguish that between he and Ray, Rich was the guy playing a lot of these leads, I think you mentioned. Yeah. After losing some of these guitar players that you, you know, you seem to turn over guitar players on every record. Was there ever a a question of the band not moving forward? Not really. Uh, The only time it, it went to not moving forward was when Merrill started to kind of drop out of the picture. And then I got, I got tired of the improv jams. Okay. And then we end off the section on sex doctor with the SWA epic, the evil and the good. Yeah. That's a long one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, uh, I think we actually learned that mostly in the studio if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. Um, and so we played that long song over and over and over again until we had it down. <laughs> All in one take? Yeah. Nothing stitched together? Oh, no. We, we don't... Well, you, we do, you do punch-ins once in a while, but uh, most of the time we were just, you know, if there was a little flub here and there, you didn't worry about it. Yeah. Was that one played live? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we played Evil in the Good live, sure. Awesome. Okay, and then... Sylvia comes into the band. Do you recall why Rich left? Uh, he had basically gone full-time SST executive role. And I think he just wanted to focus on business. You know, that was his thing now. Okay. But, there, yeah, there wasn't any, as far as I know, there wasn't any kind of animosity or any burnout per se. He just decided it was time to move on. Do you recall the initial jam session with Sylvia? You know, I, I do have a vague recollection of it. I, I, I remember I remember coming in and thinking, wow, this is really different. I do remember that. She, she completely different energy. Mm-hmm. Crazy lady energy. Yeah. The record starts with, a, with the song Faker's Blues. We're talking about the, the record 93 now. Right. That's a great opening track. Yeah, it is. Then we go into the optimist. You've mentioned before that you're not happy with the drum sound on this record, particularly oh, the the reverb. Gosh. Yeah, <laughs> Ethan's plate reverb, bane of my existence. I, I can, in the darkness of night, I can hear the pst, pst sound in my head ringing. <laughs> with the, along with the gate, it was a gated reverb plate. But yeah, that was the the reverb plate hanging up on the outside of the bathroom wall. You had to be careful not to make noise if they were using it or it would cause the reverb plate to rattle and right. you know, hear the sound of the toilet flushing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the track that this compilation's named after, Evolution. You mentioned, you know, Chuck's writing style and his song structure. So many starts and stops and, you know, just a totally unconventional song structure on this. Yeah, the funny thing is, is now it doesn't seem unconventional to me at all. It it seems quite normal. Right. 
Okay, and then Arroyo, the vi- ah, yes. the video, one of pro- probably my favorite video of any SST band. Merrill put together a pretty damn high end production for that time uh, for no money. I mean, you know, he was involved with people that were in the film industry, so he was able to acquire a lot of resources for next to nothing uh, just because people were his friends. And after selling your moped to Susie Gardner, you got an upgrade for the for the Royal. Oh, that's video. right, the Suzuki. <laughs> I actually bought that off of, of Phil Van Dyne, Philo. Oh, really? Uh, Swa's final guitar player. Yeah, he wasn't riding it anymore, and I needed transportation. <laughs> yeah, I actually almost wrecked the bike on on that shot because, you know, that was soft dirt and sand. Right. <laughs> there at Red Rock Canyon, and that was a street bike, and they do not do well on. On dirt and sand, and it did not want to stay up. <laughs> <laughs> and I seem to recall you telling me you had to really white knuckle it to the actual video oh, shoot as well. <laughs> y- yes, I got off work, and it was the sun was starting to set, and I knew they were going to shut down shooting at a certain point. And um, I drove from rode from Torrance to uh, the Mojave Desert. Uh, once I got out on the open highway, I went as fast as the bike would go. I, it was, I think it topped out at about 110, 115 miles, no, 120 miles an hour. I was passing cars like they were standing <laughs> still. And I made it just in time. They were literally just getting ready to shut down the lights that they were lighting up the cliff face with. And if they'd done that, I would have never found the set. And it's not the last SWA video. You made a pretty awesome video for the song Winter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was filmed at Scarpati Studios. I remember that. And Modi was in on that, too. Oh, okay. I remember it was right when Super VHS had come out. Actually, the my day job, I was actually selling Super VHS camcorders and VCRs, and Modi had one of the cameras that I actually would sell people, and she was doing a lot of the pickup shots and stuff with it. I remember gotcha. that. Okay. We've got a song called So Long, written by Meryl Ward. It's a bit of a, it's a bit bluesy. And it's so long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, it's a good song. It is good. Yeah. And then we've got, uh, the last song on this comp succumb written by Lisa Derrick and Sylvia. Yes. I'm wondering if that was maybe Sylvia brought that from to Damascus or something. I, you know, I don't know if she did, but, I know Sylvia's got a bit of a bondage thing going on. Ah. <laughs> so it's it, it's a great song. Yeah. And yeah. Lisa Derrick, we're still, my wife has actually become very good friends with Lisa. They've done, um, Lisa's an art curator now at her gallery, and my wife has actually had pieces in some of Lisa's shows. Oh, cool. It's amazing how many, you know, of these connections from back then you're still people that are still in you're still in touch with yeah yeah it is surprising well probably thank facebook for that yeah for sure yeah okay so that is like i guess the idea behind this compilation was to show everybody where swa has been on these first three releases do you have a favorite of those of the first three uh the first uh three releases yeah um Gosh, that's tough. I love 93 and Sex Doctor are definitely the two favorites of the three. But if I had to choose between those two, yeah, I'd probably have to say Sex Doctor. But it, that's it's it's a toss-up. 
All right, so tell me about what happened next with SWA. We obviously haven't gotten to those to those records yet, but give me a little teaser. Well, it's so funny. I haven't thought about it in so long. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, Sylvia left uh, to go do her own thing, and uh, Phil, back in the picture again. Yeah, Phil. Phil had stayed in touch with Tony and Ray, and they'd become really good friends after that first time that Phil tried out to sing in the Ascendance. And uh, I thought, hey, you know, maybe we should talk to Phil. And I think Phil had already been by to jam with us prior. I can't remember. I'm, uh, Phil, wish I had him here to ask. But, uh, you know, I was still good friends with Phil, too. And um, Chuck, I think knew Phil as well at that point and you know brought him into jam and that was that Phil's played with everybody I think he's playing in Worm again right now yeah he's playing in Worm now you know he's done Saccharine Trust Jack Brewer Band yeah Phil's very prolific and he is one of the smartest people I know like a lot of people don't know this but Phil is actually a programming genius with software and has been since the 80s yeah no he's remarkably talented software writer Hmm. get him and chuck in a room together i'm guessing there's some (laughs) interesting conversations well the three of us when we used to practice at phil's mom's house uh they uh phil had built a rehearsal studio in his garage i think he might have done it along with tony lombardo too I, i can't remember if tony helped him or not but anyway you know we'd go in and practice and then we would spend an hour on a break, just talking about stuff, you know, <laughs> like technology, firearms, uh, you know, just the, the universe. Right. Just we 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 would get so involved in these conversations that we would forget to go back to practice a lot of times. So we'd wind <laughs> up cutting it short <laughs> and just go home. But yeah, uh, it was uh, they're definitely to this day my my favorite people. What about you musically? What did you do after SWA? I, I do have to ask you about your time in Chemical People because my, my podcast co-host Ryan is a fanatic. Yeah, so Dave Naz and I had been uh, good friends for a long time. Um, and David asked me on a couple of occasions if I would join up and play drums with them. But I either had something else going on or I just wasn't interested in playing drums, but I, I never spent more than a few months without actually being a drummer until the past 10 years after I moved up here to Northern California. I have not consistently drummed, but before that I've never stopped drumming for more than a month or two at a time. So one day Nas called me up and he said, Hey, you know, we were thinking about getting the chems back together and wondered if you want to play drums. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'll do it this time. And, you know, by this point, Dave had a business to run. Ed had a business to run. And they really weren't able to dedicate as much time to it as what it needed. So it didn't last very long. We did a handful of shows, didn't record. And basically that was the end of it. Right. But it was fun. It was fun for that brief, brief time. How did you get into doing live sound? Well, if you want to go all the way back, uh, when I was a fourth or fifth grade at my Catholic grade school, I, w- I would go into the auditorium on during lunch recess and play around with the lights and the, the old tube sound system they had in there. And that was literally my start to it. And, right. uh, but 
it didn't get serious until the uh, 84 or yeah, 85 Black Flag tour. Uh, was the second tour that Black Flag had brought Rat Sound out on. Right. And so back in those days, the band was also the road crew. So we were all humping the PA and helping stack it and tear it down every night and, you know, wrap up cables and whatnot and load the truck. And uh, I became friends with Dave Rat, who to this day we're still good friends and stay in touch. Uh, and it brought back, I mean, he was a nerd just like me. And, you know, I love things audio related or video or anything technology wise. And, uh, right. he really inspired me to learn more about it. And, uh, I, I actually worked for rat for a little while after that, that tour, but they were flat broke and couldn't afford to pay me after their PA had been stolen from them for a second time. And, uh, I, uh, parted ways with them, but they kept growing and growing and growing to become one of the biggest small sound companies in the United States. And, uh, I got back into it in the, uh, late nineties and I started buying gear and started talking to Dave again and started building up a, a PA inventory. And that's basically how I, I got back into it. Right on. Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, Truly my pleasure. All right. Like I said, that is a great recap of kind of, you know, Greg Cameron's version of the SST story. And it, it covers the landscape almost, right? Descendants, Black Flag, Swa. There's uh, some great stuff there. And Greg's a heck of a guy, too. Super nice. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. Um, it sounds really good, too, the interview, because he beefed up his system at home because he's a he's a audio engineer, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. His vocals were, yep. well, you know, the audio from him sounds great. Yep. Better than mine does on our show, on the show <laughs> with my cheapy, cheap mic. Probably the most detail we've gotten about Ray Cooper's time as lead vocalist of the descendants. Yeah. And the ascendants yep. tenure as well. Yep. Very interesting stuff, man. I, I don't think he mentions this in the interview, but he told me off air that much of the material that they worked on in the Ascendance was stuff that ended up on the Tony All record. That's how oh, far, yeah. that's how far back that stuff goes. Yeah, we got some uh, kind of a different take on Frank Nevada too. Yeah, we've all, always kind of just heard mostly Bill talk about Frank. So interesting to get a different perspective on that. Yep. Probably the most interesting thing was the fact that Gin and Kira asked him to join Flag. Yeah. I don't think we knew that. And he couldn't do it because of his loyalty to Chuck, which is like, that's a friend for you. That's the thing that stuck out. I'm like, man, Greg's a good friend. Yep. Uh, he mentions, Ryan, in the interview, Rich's, Rich Ford's brother, Mark. Uh, I got excited when he said that, so I asked him about it later, if Rich's brother was the Mark Ford who ended up in the Black Crows and the Magpie Salute later. Because he was around the scene, like he played in Cathedral of Tears with Jack Grissom, but it's not the same Mark Ford. Different oh, guy. Damn it. Yep. Uh, Jula Bell, one of those names that's been popping up recently. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, again, hey? Yep. Um, he mentions their band, Mark Spitz Freestyle. I knew I'd heard the name before, uh, and they, it's because they have a track, I think. It might be their only officially released 
song uh, on a sympathy for the record industry comp called Root Damage. And it's total cowpunk. Root Damage. Nice. Mark Mark Weber from Nip Drivers was in that band too. And of course, uh, he quotes Ginn as basically saying, if I could just get rid of everyone in the band... (laughs) <laughs> like that's my ideal situation. <laughs> Gin did that eventually, right? There, are, there's footage of him, like, you know, playing a side stage at festivals where it's just him and a program track, and he's just shredding for 45 minutes to a track. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the the tunes and the artwork. Yeah, man. History lesson part two. So we kind of went over the the songs a little bit with Greg. I'm not going to do it again because we've kind of been through all these songs before, but I just have some general thoughts on, on the record. Like, I was really grooving to this swa comp this week. Yeah, it's a good selection of the cuts, hey? Yep. Like, it, it's, pretty, it's a pretty solid um, set of tunes, and it kind of reminded me how, you know how when we went through it, through them, your future, if you have one, didn't really grab me. I started getting into Sex Doctor, and then by the time 93 came around, it was a done deal. Um, I became a fan over those three releases, and when I listened to them in order, I groove in increasing grooviness yeah. toward the end of the record, for sure. I think I like Sex Doctor. I think that has, just based on the tracks they selected here, the most of the, my favorites were happened to be off of Sex Doctor. Me too, especially yeah. Sea and Sky. That's yeah. the one like I was like, damn, that's a good t- good song, right? Yeah. Some great lyrics. As I've said many times, Meryl Ward is one of my top 10 favorite SST vocalists. All three of the guitar guitarists are perfect for the band. Greg is a yeah. super solid and underrated drummer. Agreed. And Chuck is not only an awesome bassist, but a super inventive writer. Songwriter, yeah. yeah. Some of his stuff too, I, I was listening to it, I, I guess, I don't know if, I don't think it was remixed or remastered or anything, maybe it was, but I could hear his bass playing, I guess, maybe differently. There's some songs where there's some serious guitar shredding solos and then underneath it, Chuck is doing some crazy chords and stuff on the bass. Yeah. Hadn't heard that before, so that was cool to hear for the first time. Yeah, I doubt it was remastered because it's SST, but... Yeah, And this kind of predates when people were remastering things, but uh, I noticed it too. And I'm not sure if I picked it, I'm not sure I picked it out to the extent that I did when we first went through these. Yeah, it was totally new to hear that this time for some reason. Weird. Maybe it's because it's on CD as opposed to vinyl. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I hate giving CDs some credit. I don't know, man. All this bullshit people say about SWA being like the worst band on SST or whatever they say. That's just people who think they're being clever or saying what they're supposed to say, you know? No, I think, yeah, I agree with you. But I also think it's people who expect to get Black Flag when they listen to SWA and they don't and they're let down and they're like, oh, I was, I wanted six pack, you know? And, and then they just don't have the patience for what SWA brings to the table. SWA rules, man, period. And this comp drives that point home big time. And... I mean, Greg says it in the interview, and it's a great point. They're an art band. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm kind of bummed we won't be seeing them again, 
next year. Yeah. We're, we're not well, going to see SWA again until 2022, Ryan. You did the math? I did the math, yeah. Wow. I want, I want, I, I was like, when am I going to get more SWA? I got to see gonna if, be a while. I got to see if Phil Van Dyne can shred as, as well as the first three guitarists. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, don't skip ahead. Okay. I won't. Something to Hang look forward just, to. Just keep cranking the evolution for now. If next year sucks as much as 2020 does, well, at least I'll have the next SWA record to look forward to in 2022. Yeah. It can't be worse. It'll be okay. There, man, dude, there's so much cool stuff to go over on the show next year, though. Like, don't worry. Yeah. Hang in there, buddy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so check out check out the artwork, hey? It's kind of the... Uh, evolution of man from from ape and cro-magnon and homo pythancropus and all those <laughs> n- names and whatever up until man right caveman yeah and uh it's a cool picture it totally fits it's got the uh the album artwork on the inside with uh i know you were just loving it when you're asking about the sex doctor photo shoot too you oh, were yeah. just Loving it, man. Yeah. Look at Chuck, too, in that picture. Hey, he's just like so, <laughs> so snide pointing at the brain. Yeah. Love that. And uh, is he right? Ro- did we go through this when we did 93? Is he rocking? Like, is Chuck rocking a boombox on his shoulder there? Oh, is yeah, that what man. that is again? Yeah. A boombox, a surfboard, and a shotgun. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, Chris Peterson gave us some SWA promo photos of his sisters. And I think that's one of them. Right on. So check out our Instagram. We'll be posting that. And then the back of the record has got basically just the tracks. But it's it's framed by, it looks like, bones tethered together by some sinew like a caveman would have done, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So, Swa's a brand band, for sure. I'm a fan, but you've always been a fan. Uh, I'll just throw in my hat for Sea and Sky and So Long. Those are my two favorite this week, for sure. Okay, well, we already did Sea and Sky for Sex Doctor. Okay, there you go. For your, Your Future, we did a song called Rip It Up, which isn't even on here. And for 93, we did Evolution. What did we do for the Arroyo show? <laughs> the long version. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, pick it out. Let's do it. Okay, well, my favorites were Sine, Cosine, X, Until You Bleed, Catacombs, Sea and Sky, Big Ride. I totally love the song The Evil and the Good. It's such an epic. Evolution is a fave. Arroyo is one I never get tired of. But I think I'm going to go with Big Ride. Big ride. That's eh? a good song, man. Yeah. Merrill's just I, smoking on that one. Yeah. When it he's like, surprise. oh, wipe out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's worth it just to hear you sing it. <laughs> All right, man. Well, there you go. The big ride. Yep. As was 2020, man. What a ride. Whoa. Yeah. As you mentioned, we've got some great stuff coming up in 2021 that I really can't wait to dive into. 
Uh, so we'll be back really soon with some new episodes. We won't be gone long. Uh, we'll be doing our top 10 lists for 2020. Is that the first episode back? I need to know. Yeah, first one back, man. I just picked out my number one today. Oh, yeah? Like it, like like it's a done deal. It's locked down. My number one for 2020, it's impenetrable. Okay. It's a done deal. Can't wait to find out what it, what it which one it is. Special thanks to Greg Cameron, who helped us out on this episode and all of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone, take care, stay safe, and have a great holiday. Likewise, and don't forget to give the gift of Mojack. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.